Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And we're... We're always trying to do something different in the show where we're looking at the kingdom of God from another point of view. And uh, and there's a lot of point of views out there. Everybody has a different point of view because everybody's coming from a different place. Uh, yet, we're all created in the image of God. Yet, we have been recreated by what some call sin. In the religious areas, we call it sin. Uh, in the area of psychology, they may call it something else. They may not use the word sin. They kind of try to stay away from terms that would be uh, considered religious. But, of course, religion today is defined as what you think about a supreme being. It used to be religion was your pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. But now it's an opinion. Religion is an opinion you have about divinity, about the gods of the world and uh, those gods of the world that, that which we have shown the word we see translate in into god in both the old and new testament was used commonly throughout history both the greek and the hebrew uh as a reference to judges and magistrates the supreme court is our gods they decide what is good and evil and by the definition of the word that we translate into God. That's why you see all these small g. It's the same word. When you see small g God, capital G God in the Bible, it's the same word. They're just, someone's deciding arbitrarily that, oh, they're not referring to the God. They're referring to these God's many that Paul talks about. Well, these are just magistrates, people who are ruling judges, because that's what the word means. It means ruling judge. So, is the God of heaven, the God of creation, your God? Or are there lesser gods deciding good and evil for you? Well, of course, if you're a U.S. citizen, the Supreme Court is the supreme law of the land. It's not God's law, but the Supreme Court. <laughs> that's the way they, that's the way they word it. Now, I mean, there's lesser or greater degrees to that statement, depending on who you are and your status and all this stuff. I mean, if you make agreements, contracts with other people, they can get an exercising authority over you. You know, if you if you join the NFL and you sign a contract with the team, the team can tell you what you can eat and what you can't eat and what you can say and what you can't say. And if you say something you're not supposed to say, you can get fined. If you're out when you're not supposed to be out, when you're not training, when you're supposed to be training, they can fine you. They can take away money that they had promised you because that's part of the deal. And so you have a deal with the NFL and with the team and with whoever you contract with. And there usually, there's a way in which you can get out of that contract, but it usually will cost you money <laughs> to get out of that contract. And, and that money is the representative of your sweat and your blood and your, your energies. And they can take that away. It's just based on the contract. Well, the contracts can go farther and farther. You can have a contract with America. 
a contract with the United States. Now, a lot of people want to completely disavow. I don't remember signing anything. I don't know anybody who's an adult who hasn't signed something somewhere. So, uh, uh, and the fact is, is you don't have to sign in order to have a contract. And we've gone over that a lot, where you can create a contract by what you do, by word or deed. That's what they mean when they say by word or deed. So your deeds can create a contractual relationship. Either that or you've, you're a thief. If you've taken something and not, and it was presented uh, according to a public terms that if you do this, you're expected to do that. It, then you're under contract if you accept that benefit. You can say, well, I didn't read the contract. Well, that's just because you're lazy and because you're foolish. Foolish people, you don't have to bind them with a contract. You can just bind them because they're foolish. They're fools. They're incompetent. And so uh, you can you can bind them for their own protection, theoretically. But then, you know, so now people can debate all that. But the reality is, is we live in this universe and there are universal laws in the universe. And we call some of those laws like gravity. <laughs> you know, it's we live in a cause and effect universe. If you hit this ball with this energy, this ball will move in that direction. And it's all, and choice is about choosing that direction that you want to go in. But how much choice do you really have? I mean, you're choosing things in your mind, in your brain. Well, how, is your brain subject to anything else? Is some, you know, besides the Supreme Court, are there other gods that rule over your mind? I mean, have there other ideas gotten into your mind that you've accepted as true, which may or may not be true, and now they influence your decision making? You know, like the guy who decides there is no social contract. Because he doesn't remember signing it. Show me the contract. Well, of course, I've written whole books showing you the contract. And how contract works. Uh, there, there are constructive contracts. That's the, you know, word or deed. The deed is a constructive contract. But then there's also written contracts. Where, you know, I mean, how many times have you signed a paper? Uh, or, you know, gone into a hospital. You sign here. The, the acceptance form where you sign. There's all kinds of writing on that. Most of the time when, you know, I actually went into the hospital once and I was delirious. <laughs> I'd been poisoned and I came into the hospital and I could barely stand up and they they wanted my ID and they wanted me to sign this form and everything and I was just throwing the wallet on the on the desk and I said, Well, I'm not gonna be conscious in a minute <laughs> kind of thing. Uh my ID's in there and I started falling over and somebody wheeled a wheelchair underneath me. And caught me just before I hit the ground. But, uh, uh, so did I, was I in, in an impaired condition when I signed the entrance <laughs> form in the hospital? Well, yeah, I, I would have a good argument for that fact. Uh, but they were absolved from any treatment they may have given me because I was impaired. And they, they now had evidence of assuming that they had a right to give me treatment.
And part of that signing is to protect them. But it's also to give them power. Power to act upon you and for you and on your behalf. Well, magnify that when you sign any kind of government document in whatever country you live in. You're probably giving somebody power and control. But before you even sign and decide to sign and you look at it and say you were one of these people that would actually, you know, before you signed your social security card for the first time, you said, well, I need to read the social security act. And so you went and got a copy of the social security act and you read it and you realized, I don't know what all these terms mean. I, I need to read some law books and you read the law books to find out the meaning of the terms and, and eventually you got back to the Constitution and the contract clause of the Constitution and you had to read all about that. And and then you decided, I need to read Bouvier's Law Dictionary because that's tied to the Constitution because the Constitution was written back in those days. So I have to know the meaning of the words to know what the heck the Constitution... So you, you did all this due diligence. And then you now you still have the decision, do I sign or not sign? Well, other influences have come upon you from the day you were born, putting ideas in your head, teaching you, and you're accepting them. My dad told me this, and my dad always told me the truth, except about Santa (laughs) and the stork and uh, all those other things he didn't tell you the truth about. But the fact is, is, and then there was your teachers in school and your buddies and all these people are telling you stuff and you're accepting some uh, out of convenience and you're accepting some out of uh, pressure and you're accepting some just because this is the best story you've heard, you know, the best explanation you've heard. And you take all that information in your head and you go out and now you're going to make decisions as if you are deciding On your own? What is good and evil? You can't do that. Because you're pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. The information that has come into your mind, the influence that has come into your being over years and years of interaction with other people has created a mind in your mind. Created a persona in your mind. And you're deciding based on that. Well, okay, let's let's take that over to the Bible. You read the Bible. It says in the Bible that the Bible is scripture is not given to private interpretation. But it's very clear that Jesus is talking about parables. Well, parables require interpretation. Occasionally he helps his apostles understand the parable but with an explanation. But the very nature of a parable requires interpretation. All of the Bible, if you go to the Old Testament, I just wrote an article on the leeks and onions that they mention in the, in the Old Testament. People were complaining. They wanted to go back and eat freely the fish or eat fish freely or eat freely... That which the fish gave us, there's several different. You go to Rishi, you go to 
the Targum, and they have all kinds of different interpretations of how that whole uh, uh, Hebrew verse is, is written and what it means. And I think that almost all of the ones that I came across don't know what it means <laughs> because they don't understand the the uh, metaphors that are being used there because their solution they they wanted the 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 leeks and the onions and the melons and supposedly all these fruits and vegetables that they're mentioning i don't think they're talking about fruits and vegetables at all because their solution had nothing to do with getting fruits and vegetables it had to do with picking 70 men <laughs> so how in the world is that solving the problem of lack of fruits and vegetables. So so they're not really talking about fruits and vegetables there. But when I wrote the article, I never told you what they were actually talking about. <laughs> I got to the point where I was at the bottom of the page and God said, okay, that's all you tell them. Don't tell them anymore. <laughs> and I thought, well, am I going to finish this later? No, no, not. I'll, I'll let you know when you finish it. So anyway, it's unfinished. At least I, I haven't taken you to the next. Uh, so yeah, there's still some interpretation there left. But I left a lot of breadcrumbs in the article. And you just have to go to preparing you and find it. And uh, maybe we'll talk about it later. But actually what I want to talk about today is Jordan Peterson and Kathy Newman. I mean, there's a video going wild on the Internet. And I saw it early on before it had two million videos. <laughs> Because I'm kind of a fan of Jordan Peterson. And uh, Kathy Newman is kind of a liberal English, uh, I, I don't want to use the word reporter, interviewer of sorts. But very, uh, very leftist and uh, looking for, but it was, it was a fascinating interview. And there are now, there are hundreds and hundreds of videos making commentaries on the Jordan Peterson, uh, Kathy Newman interview and it was phenomenal and i'll tell you that you know when i saw it and i I saw it before i saw all these commentaries and articles written about it you actually see an example of binding a demon right there on camera (laughs) and i don't even know if jordan peterson understood what he had done but he bound a demon so that Power was lost. Now, people can argue, demon? What are you talking about, demon? You talk about devils and spirits and all this stuff. Well, anybody who's listened to a lot of our other programs on the universe and and quantum and and uh, all these things, there there are other realms in which evil dwells and wants influence in this realm. And there's many, many. There in my father's house, there are many mansions. There are many. Places in which people may dwell. Uh, entities. You wouldn't call them entities rather than people if you want. It's more descriptive. Um, and there's many different levels of these entities. And they're out there. But you don't get to say the devil made me do it. <laughs> you can't use that as an excuse. Because you're an entity too. And you're dwelling in your fleshly body. But you're subject and people are always worried about being subject to government. You know, all the anarchists out there, they don't want to be subject to government. Uh, they want to be free. If, if suddenly government disappeared and you were free, you still would not be free. 
because you're still subject. You're subject to all the ideas that's gotten into your mind from the people you know, the entities you see before you. And the reality is is sometimes you're influenced by the entities you do not see before you. (laughs) Because you do not see with spiritual eyes. You see with physical eyes. You you have a fallen nature. You used to walk with God in the light of God at mankind, man. But now you've fallen to, we call it sin, but you've fallen from your true nature into a fleshly nature. But you also have the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what that, they, that, that's the way they list them off. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, the world is all those people out there, you know, all the influences, all the advertisements, all the brainwashing that goes on in, in college campuses and public schools, etc. And so much of it is just built into curriculums, into textbooks, saying this is true. I always remember my uncle, uh, back when I was, you know, a young, young man, and I went out to North Dakota, and uh, we could see the Aurora Borealis at night, the northern lights way up there in northern North Dakota. And he says, well, that's from reflection of the sun off of the uh, polar caps. And I thought, no, it's not. <laughs> it's heating of gases in the upper atmosphere. No, no, that's the reflection of sunlight off of the polar caps. And I said, no, actually, that's that's from the Van Allen radiation belt, and it's coming from coronal mass ejections that have supercharged energy coming in toroidal balls. I didn't tell them all that. But that's what it's... It, it There's auroras on on Jupiter. There's auroras on Saturn and uh, other planets when they get hit by the solar winds uh, often containing these coronal mass ejections that come from the sun. And they will heat up gases in the upper atmosphere. And you will see auroras on these other planets that have no polar ice cap. So it's not that. But he lived across the street from the old one-room schoolhouse. He actually owned it at that time. And uh, and they had the old school books in there. And we found the old school book. And there it was in their science book that the aurora was the reflection <laughs> of sunlight off of the polar caps. Because they used to teach that as science when he went to school. So he was, was he wrong? Cause he, he, he read it was, but that book was still influencing him, you know, 50 years later. He was still influenced by what he was taught. And that's, that's, I mean, we could actually find the documented evidence, the old book sitting there and read it in there and where he got that idea. And you couldn't, you couldn't hardly convince him. Eventually, I think I did convince him because I happened to know a little bit of, you know, I could name the gases back in those days that were being heated and and how electrons worked and and how this all functioned. But uh, and so he was kind of overwhelmed by the uh, continuity and the abundance of information that I could throw out in this area, and he began to doubt the original book that he read. Well. I'm still doing that for people when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the truth, when it comes to your mind and your soul, which are often uh, co-relative. The mind and soul are co-relative. 
And, and the mind is often attached to the heart because as the heart goes, so goes the mind. And, uh, ask anybody in love. <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, the reality is, is that, uh, what, so I'm, I'm giving out all kinds of information about the Bible, about words, about what they used to mean, what they, what, how they changed the definition of words over the years and have channeled your thinking so that when you read the Bible and you see the word religion, you think religion is what you think about God, but that's a changed definition. We could go through, you know, definitions about law. There are several different words that are translated into the word law, uh, depending on if you've you know, if, if you're reading a translation that was turned into Latin and then turned into English, uh, the Romans had several words that are translated law. And they don't mean the same thing. They mean something different. The Greeks, on the other hand, they only have this nomos that is translated law. So you have to look at context to know which type of law you're talking about. So when Paul's talking about nomos, law, he may be talking about the laws of the Pharisees. Well, those aren't the laws of nature. Those are the laws of the Pharisees. That's that's a different law. You know, the Romans actually have a different word to refer to what is just, right, and fair and what is legal. Both of them can be translated into law, but they actually don't mean the same thing. So anyway, we can go through all that, but what we're going to look at a little bit now is the workings of your mind. <laughs> because Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist and uh, it was very interesting. He's he's a, he's not just your average everyday clinical psychologist. He is a very smart guy and he is uh contemplated a great uh deal over his life watching people and has learned a great deal from it. And I think he's a pretty nice guy. You know, he's very uh, introspective, looking at himself and and critical of himself. And this actually gives him some uh, power to deal with the leftist mentality who never want to look at themselves. All the problems of the world are somebody else's fault. <laughs> you know, if they have problems, it's because they're a victim of somebody else has made them this way. It's not my fault the devils of the world made me do this, you know. And uh, it's amazing, you know, the leftist parades are out there uh, chanting, you know, kill the president, kill the vice president, uh, kill Christians, kill and, and murder and torture even. They're actually calling for torture. And they get by with it. You know, if, if we were saying anything like that, <laughs> we'd be arrested. That's a crime. That's threatening people. Uh, but they they do the very thing they accuse everybody else of. And that is common. You accuse others of what you yourself are doing. And we're going to look at that when we come back.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're we're going to take a look at uh, what it means. You know, the Bible tells you that it's not given to private interpretation, but yet we were showing you that it is given to interpretation. Otherwise, it wouldn't be full of parables and stories and all this stuff because that requires some interpretation. And certainly the Hebrew language, which is full of of idioms and metaphors and uh and you and they play fast and loose with all the translations uh and modern Christendom when it wanted to read the Old Testament it went to the Pharisees or Pharisee types and said what do these words mean which is amazing because Jesus made it very clear the Pharisees didn't know what the word meant they didn't know what the Torah meant they didn't know what it said uh, because if they did, they, if they knew Moses, they would know Jesus. But they didn't know Jesus. They didn't recognize him. And so therefore, they didn't know what the Old Testament was saying. Now we have Messianic Jews running around saying, oh, we gotta go back and do this and we gotta go do that because all these laws were made from the beginning and we have to abide by these laws. But they don't understand them because they're reading the Bible through the private interpretation of the Pharisees. And, you know, like I I said to a number of people at a Bible study last week, I said there was a group of people, it wasn't a homogeneous group, but a general, you know, people put labels on them as a part of this movement, the Essene movement, we'll call it a movement, because it really wasn't a group, that had a different interpretation of the Old Testament that was so vastly different that they were ostracized in many ways. Some some ways they were ostracized simply because they would not be involved with what the Pharisees were involved with. One thing is they they did they read the Torah, they considered it the sacred word of God. And they used different calendars. Some people say that well they used the solar calendar. Well, actually they used several different calendars because you'll find some using. Some evidence that some groups are using a solar calendar and some evidence that some groups are using a lunar calendar. And it is my contention or interpretation of that those facts is the fact that they use both. And I just base it on practicality. Why would they use a lunar calendar? Well, they use it for the feasts. Why? Because you want to have a feast when there's a full moon. (laughs) Because... There are no streetlights. <laughs> and without a full moon, it's going to be really, really dark at night. <laughs> but with a full moon, you can find your way around. And if you've got a thousand people meeting out there in tents, it's handy to have a full moon. So, they use a lunar calendar. Just logistics. Just practicality. <laughs> but if you're going to plant, well, then they wanted to use a solar calendar. <laughs> so, And if you're going to navigate... They wanted to use the celestial calendar. So, and they were big navigators because they were part, the same movement was out there amongst the sea kings, what they call the sea kings, which is when they were doing all this boating around and transporting of goods and buying and selling. But what really made them Essenes was the fact that they had this underlying philosophy that was different than the psychosis of the Pharisees and the Pharisee types. And 
eventually the Pharisee types always lead you to the Canaanite types. And we've talked about Canaanites before. Canaanite means merchants, merchants of men. And they didn't call themselves Canaanites. We call them Canaanites because they were merchants of men. They they caused men to become merchandise, slaves and servants, bondsmen, sureties for debt in their different city-states. And so that's what made them Canaanites. And uh, the Asurs in northern India, way back in the days of Abraham, did the same thing. They they made men mer- human resources. Uh, so that your labor didn't belong to you. It belonged somehow either to the state or to some rich man or some pharaoh or whatever. You didn't own all, you didn't have a right to all your labor. And, uh, and socialism is a part of that concept. That's, that's the bait that, you know, that gets all the animals in the corral. And then it quickly turns to communism and millions die. <laughs> so anyway, but, but a lot of people can't see this at all because their minds are stuck in darkness. And we're going to get to why I say that. Why, why they, they have gone to the dark side. And, uh, you know, uh, death and destruction is a part of their plan. So anyway, I'm giving you facts and information mostly to kind of pry I, I want to rattle the bars of your mental cage. I want to shake the branches in the tree of knowledge that you think is the tree of life. You think you're saved because you had an emotional experience and everything. And the fact is, uh, one of the things that Jordan Peterson says when talking about addiction is that uh, what happens is your mind gets wired, so to speak, by your interaction with the world, the flesh, and occasionally the devil. And uh, although he may not use the devil, uh, maybe the id of other people, <laughs> the shadow in other people. And it gets rewired. And it's hard to change that wiring. Like I said with my uncle, he just could not accept the fact that, no, the aurora is not the reflection of the sun off the polar caps. Because that he had learned it at such a young age, it was not going to come out easily. <laughs> and so, I give you facts to help pry that loose. Why do people talk in parables? Why do they have fables and stories to talk about these things? Uh, and use metaphors and allegories. Because you're, they say you're never to attack the delusion. And, uh, and, uh, I could I could show you how this is how Kathy Newman lost her train of thought. It wasn't because Jordan Peterson attacked her, but because he agreed with her <laughs> in, in a roundabout sort of way. I mean, it was classic. It was classic, and she was just completely befuddled. She couldn't even gather her thoughts. Because she's not alone in gathering her thoughts. She is collect in a collective unconsciousness. And that's what Carl Jung, uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, they talk about this collective unconsciousness. And they break it down into all kinds of categories. So we're going to use some of the uh, psychologist terminology. Uh, so that, but we're going to relate it to spiritual and biblical principles. Uh, 
so that you get a better and a more thorough possible grasp. But really what we want to do is unchain you. We want to break the bars that have kept you. Like I was talking about the Messianic Jews going back and trying to do all the old law according to who? According to the Essenes? According to Christ? According to Moses? Or according to the pharisaical interpretation? Because the Essenes are not doing any animal sacrifice. Doesn't it call for animal sacrifice in the Torah? They say no. It doesn't. It doesn't talk about killing animals and setting them on piles of stone and setting them, setting them on fire. They're saying no. It doesn't say anything about that. Well, how could that be? I've read the Bible. It says it right in there just as clear as me. Well, if you read the book, Thy Kingdom Come, we got at least one chapter. If you don't want to read the whole book, go read uh, our essay on sophistry. And, and we could write book after book on that. And uh, I'm, I'm working again on another book. And I'm constantly adding to it. Constantly uh, organizing it. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to go through all the places in the Bible where the metaphors are there. Because I'm going to go through some, and I have already. But that's just to show you that what you have believed to be true just ain't so. And, and the Essenes, who were far, far more popular than the Pharisees, you don't hear much about them. They don't seem to be mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, but they actually are because they never called themselves Essenes, so you don't see the word Essenes. Uh, they were often called healers, and there are healers mentioned <laughs> in the Bible in the New Testament. Uh, and uh, And they had certain practices that were unique to them uh, one thing, if you saw somebody carrying water in a vase for other people from some spring or well or whatever, and it was a man, odds are it was in a scene. Because the scenes would do that. Pharisees wouldn't do that. That was woman's work. They wouldn't get caught dead carrying, you know, Pharisee wouldn't get caught dead carrying water. That's woman's work. Women should be carrying the water. But if you found an Essene doing it, if you found a man doing it, chances are it was an Essene. Because they they didn't divide. They knew the difference between men and women, but they didn't make that division along social lines of, you know, uh, patriarchal control. They They based it on something else, generally speaking. But, uh, and, and there's mention of somebody, uh, Jesus actually says, go and you'll find a man carrying water. <laughs> and tell them that, uh, to get ready for the Last Supper. And, uh, so anyway, uh, those are little things that if you know about the culture at the time, you can start putting these pieces together and start realizing that Jesus, and then Jesus had so many teachings that were right in line with the Essenes, not taking oaths. This is why you would find almost no Essenes working in government at the time of Herod's, because often an oath was required. You had to bind yourself to the service of the king. Most Essenes would not do that. You would find some that would call themselves, they didn't call themselves Essenes, but would be categorized as Essenes. And they weren't necessarily bad guys. They 
Some of them were, uh, you know, prophets in their own right. But uh, most of them wouldn't do that. And the others kind of held them in a little bit of contempt and referred to them as the lovers of soft things because they made certain concessions. And, uh, of course, if you get anybody who's an absolute strict, 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 strict as seen, you're probably looking at a zealot. <laughs> so... <laughs> It was, they understood that this was a spiritual walk in which your mind had to be rewired. That's what repentance is. It's a rewiring of the mind. And that's what Jordan Peterson says when it comes to addiction. He says, he pointed out that AA had a real great success rate because of the fact that they brought in this religious aspect to overcoming addiction. The, this, and, and he says that's, he says you can't really reproduce this religious awakening. And, and then he, he second, has a second thought and says, well, you can a little bit. <laughs> but what he's saying, what repentance is, is rewiring the brain. Your brain has been wired by everything around you. By all the influences, by trauma, uh, as a child, by, uh, uh, by abuse, by affection, by emotion, uh, by your parents, by your friends, by circumstances, uh, beyond anybody's theoretical control, your brain has been wired. Some of those things are hardwired in from the beginning because you're made in the image of God and you were born, uh, with certain, you know, ancestral traits passed down genetically. So your genes are wiring you as well as the conditions of your life wiring you and the emotions that have occurred during your life. All these things are wiring you. Uh, we've dealt with a couple of times now with people who had uh, uh, capgras, which is induced by drugs. Uh, if you take amphetamines especially, uh, they can actually uh, damage part of the wiring, the hard wiring in your brain, the actual nerve endings in your brain. So it breaks a connection so that one of the symptoms of Capgras is that you will look at people that you know, your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father, your husband. Uh, had a case where suddenly a, a woman thought her husband was not her husband. Yeah, he looks like my husband, but he's not. It's a, it's a fraud. It's a fake. It's not not really my husband. It's somebody who's come in here pretending to be my husband, and he's evidently had plastic surgery. He looks just like my husband, but he's not my husband. That's real things, and that happens in an instant. Because usually because of drugs, it can actually happen because of illness or injury, where you actually sever. Internal, these the wiring, the nerves are deep inside the brain, so it's seldom done. Although there are cases where it's happened because of like a motorcycle accident, and they don't recognize the people they recognize as the people they recognize. In other words, that looks like my father, that looks like my mother, but it's not. It's it's aliens, you know, pod people, uh, what have you. Um, or, or they're spies, or they're whatever. And the closer the person is, the more likely this will manifest itself. And it's because they sever certain nerves in the mind. Well, 
that's that's a, a dramatic example. But the reality in deciding good and evil, interpreting the Bible, uh, deciding to become a Messianic Jew or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or whatever it is, are all influenced by those connections in your mind. But in order to interpret the Bible correctly, you must have God right upon your heart and upon your mind. And Christ is actually telling you everything you need to know to allow that to take place. And he makes it really clear. Forgiveness. Key element. Absolutely key element. If you're going around blaming other people, like your congregation's not doing what it should do because of the minister, or because of this guy in the congregation, or that guy in the congregation, you, you're not going to get it. You're not going to, you're not going to let, God's not going to be able to write on your heart and on your mind. Cause you're not walking in forgiveness. You're walking in blame. You're blaming other people. This is why leftists have such a hard time with facts. Is because, I mean, their brains have been taken over so that they don't use their brains. They're, that's why they're so emotional. They're all caught up in emotion. If you get all huffy and march out and get angry and all this stuff, you, you're over there in the emotions. You're not, you're, God can't write on your heart and your mind, especially if you have judgmental emotions. So forgiveness is absolutely essential. But how do you forgive? Well, pride usually keeps you from forgiving. Lack of humility, which is, you know, pride doesn't really exist. Pride is like darkness. It doesn't exist. It, except in your mind. Humility, that's where the power's at. But you think pride is where the power's at. <laughs> but that's just the reverse. Forgiveness is important. And in order to test the forgiveness, giving is important. Because giving, fear, keeps God from writing on your heart and your mind. And the reason you don't give, most of the time the reason you don't give is you're afraid. Oh, no, my money, that's my security. That gives me comfort because I know I got it there. You don't live from, I don't encourage you to live from paycheck to paycheck, but do not get your security from your money, your possessions, your house, you know, people looking for that special place where they can survive their survival outfit. Uh, I know it's down there, you know, in uh, Oklahoma or, or Kansas or Missouri or or uh, Carolinas or someplace like that. Uh, or here in the high deserts of Oregon. If you're going there because that's your security, that will be your falling. Because you're reaching outside yourself. And all this becomes a part of your delusion. Because there is no security there. Security is in doing the will of the Father. Uh, tapping into the spiritual realm. You can't do that unless you're giving and forgiving. And forgiving and giving. And giving and forgiving. And it's a left foot, right foot thing. And so, anyway... Jordan Peterson mentioned just briefly uh, animus possession, and uh, and 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 that's a whole complicated story. Anima, there's an anima and animus. This is kind of Carl Jung's uh, school of analytical psychology. He brings up the anima and the animus, and uh, he refers to these as two primary anthropomorphic uh, archetypes. In other words, they're 
the the woman may have an animus in her subconscious, uh, you know, a, a male identity in her subconscious, and uh, and the man may have a female anima uh, identity in his subconscious. But it's in their subconscious, so you don't really see it. But occasionally, they leak <laughs> into your conscious mind, at least into your actions, and they influence your decisions. I mean, this is Carl Jung. I'm using those psychological terms. Um, but the reality is, is uh, you know, we could use spiritual terms or religious terms, but by looking at this, for the same things, the mind, from different points of view, we will get a better... Uh, understanding, hopefully, of the mind. And because what you think is the elephant in the room. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, what you think is true is the elephant in the room. You know, like the old poem by John Sachs. What is it? John Godfrey Sachs, the, the blind man, uh, uh, the blind man and the elephant. Yeah, it was six men of Hindustan, uh, too learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind. <laughs> that each by observation might satisfy his mind. And so each one takes a different part of the elephant. And, uh, you know, one, you know, falls against it and uh, begins to bawl. Uh, because he thinks the elephant is very much like a wall, <laughs> because he falls against the side. And another one uh, touches the tusk and thinks it's like a spear, and, uh, and the other the trunk and thinks it's like a snake. And so they all have this different opinion, because they're only seeing part of the elephant. And so, you know, and, and the, the truth is, you can't see all of the elephant at any time. That God can, but you can't. Because you can't see the inside, you can't see the other side. You know, the elephant's all, you know, you say you look at it with your eyes and you see the elephant's all upset and everything and you think, well, I don't know what's the matter with the elephant. I think it's this or that and everything. But if you looked on the other side of the elephant, you'd see that somebody put a big thorn in his side. <laughs> But you can't see that because you're on the wrong side of the elephant. So even if you have eyes, you may not have eyes to see. But if you see with spiritual eyes, you'll see the bigger picture. You won't see everything, but you'll see everything you need to see. And that's what God can provide. So you can you can read the Bible without knowing all the history that I know and all the information and you know about the the language in the Bible. But you just because you see God you understand what is being said. You know, it's it's like I was telling you earlier that nomos is the word for law in the Greek that Paul is always using, but sometimes he's talking about pharisaic law, and sometimes he's actually talking about more natural law. And, uh, and so, and then of course, somebody was pointing out, you know, that... Uh, the apostles were doing contrary to the decrees of Caesar. And he referred to the, the Christians were all committing treason. No, they weren't. They had another king. That's what it goes on to say. They had another king, one Jesus. And they were obeying their king. 
and had every right to do it because Pontius Pilate said Jesus is the king of the Jews. It was the Pharisees who said we have no king but Caesar. The the Jews, the early Christians, see, when they they said they had no king but Caesar, they were no longer Jews. (laughs) They'd moved out of the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of Rome. And so, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about 1 Corinthians 6.12. All things are lawful unto me when we come back. See if we can make some connections in your brain. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're going to talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful unto me. But before we do that, everybody that's listening, we're just talking about the kingdom of God here. If you actually want to seek the kingdom of God, you've got to become a doer of the word. Just like I was saying previously is that you can't, you know, you, you, you have to be giving and forgiving in order to let God write upon your heart and your mind. In God's instructions, Christ's instructions, John the Baptist's instructions was to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Listening to me talk is not seeking. It's just listening to me talk. If you don't afterwards get up and seek the kingdom of God, and how do you seek the kingdom of God? By being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Because all you're doing now is hearing. You're not doing so that what do you do? Well, you have to come together in the character of Christ in the name of Christ who came forgiving and giving. So that's what you have to do. And you have to do it with others and a banquet together, gathering together. And Christ commanded, and we talked about this in the article, The Congregation. Uh, he commanded that his disciples make the people, didn't ask the people, make the people sit down in these companies of ten, fifties, and hundreds. And they had to do that before there was going to be any loaves and fishes. We still have people who want loaves and fishes, but they don't want to sit down in companies of tens and ranks of fifty and ranks of a hundred and thousands. That Christ commanded his apostles to require the people to do. Now, we're not going to make the people do it, but if you you can't make us give you loaves and fishes if you won't do it. See, because you're not a doer of the word. You're not. You don't believe in Christ because he said you were supposed to do this. And Moses said you were supposed to do this. Moses got the idea from Jethro, but where did Jethro get the idea from? He got it from Abraham. And Abraham got it because he understood how it's supposed to work. I mean, even Nimrod organized this way, but he did it from the top down. You have to do it from the bottom up. And people don't quite have this concept down. Because we we set this up, you pick a minister. You pick a minister because you're also picking the congregation of that minister. But you start by picking that minister. You choose to have that minister connect you with the rest of the network. And you can change that anytime you want. 
But you're not congregating unless you're getting to know the other people in that congregation of that minister. And they're not under the authority of that minister. He's under the authority of God and he's supposed to be connecting them. But unless you congregate in that walking in forgiveness and giving and overcoming your bitterness and your judgment and your, you know, all your prejudices. In other words, repent and allow God to rewire you so you can be in the same room with these guys, even though they're not perfect. Then, you know, how are you getting closer to the kingdom? You have to congregate. You have to sit down together and become a congregation, a altar of clay. Anyway, we just did two shows about this or courses about this in our free church report. Join the network. Find out where they are. Ask about them. People will show you. And you can find out how the early church organized. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He also, in First in Corinthians 10.23, he also says all things are lawful. And he's using a particular word there. Now, there's a word in the Greek that means lawful. And it's in nomos. Nomos meaning law. In nomos meaning under the law or uh, bound to the law. And that that it's translated lawful in in the bible and that's that's a common word because it includes that word law in it in nomos but that's not the word you see here in 1 Corinthians 6:12 <laughs> and i knew that wasn't the word you see here and i hadn't even read it yet in the greek <laughs> but but other people they may only see part of the elephant so they don't always catch that but the word there is exesti it doesn't have anything to do with nomos. It, it's not, he's not saying law. We translate it. All things are lawful. And, and pretty consistently, that, that word is translated as to be lawful, or may, or let. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but he says he will not go under the power of any. Well, the word power there, it is the word that from which we get exousia, which is which is the same word we see in Romans thirteen, where he says, "Let everyone be subject to the higher powers." Exousia. He's saying he will not go under the exousia of anybody. So what? Wait a minute, and now he's telling us that we're supposed to be under the authority according to the interpretation. It's That's not what it's saying. Because <laughs> it, the word exousia has to do with the right to choose. I will not go under the power of other people to choose for me what is good and what is evil. <laughs> I will not go under that power. See, so anyway, that's that's what he's telling us is that he will not go under, give somebody else the power to decide good and evil for him. And of course, how would you do that? Well, by contract. 
by agreement, by application, for benefits, by praying to the fathers of the earth, by seeking the benefits of the men who call themselves benefactors, but all they do is take away from your neighbor. And when you go to them, then that means they have the right to take away from you. And so you become subject because you are willing to take a bite out of your neighbor to get a benefit. You yourself are devoured. Basic principles. It's in the law of cause and effect. You can't change it. It already exists. And your parents can subject you to it. They can sell you into bondage. And didn't they do that in, in Pharaoh's Egypt? They One generation makes a deal with Pharaoh's Egypt that if you feed us, you can have 20% of our labor. And presto, bingo, 400 years later, they're still in that same bondage. How did they come out of that bondage? They repented. They thought a different way. They said, yeah, we will give you the 20%, but we will not take your benefits anymore. Of course, they had a little help because the Pharaoh said you can't have them anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, but he, he said that because they wanted to be free. He says, okay, well, you want to be free. You have to pay the 20%, but not take the benefit. See, everybody, everybody says, I paid in. I won. I, I have a right to my social security check. I have a right to my welfare. I have a right to this. I mean, that's what all the leftists, they have a right to everything. They have a right to stuff they haven't even been granted the right to yet. They, you know, they, they want reparations for crimes that were committed, uh, supposed crimes, you know, of slavery, you know, 200 years before, 300 years ago. They want to, they want to be paid back for all that. <laughs> But uh, I can guarantee you they've been paid back already. But anyway, so I just wanted to point that out that you won't go under the power of any, the, the, the power of other people to make choices for you. But the reality is you've already done that. You've not only done it through social contracts and with the help of your parents and your own wantonness and um, lust for benefits, but you've also done it through the anima and animus and through trauma and through unforgiveness and through selfishness. I mean, I mean, one of the archetypes of self besides the anima and animus that Carl Jung talks about is self itself. You know, it, it's all about self. But Christ was all about the sacrifice of self. I lay down my life to pick up my life more abundant. You want to be free? You have to set others free. You cannot be imposing your what you think they ought to be doing on them. Now you can you can have an opinion about it, but you have no right to impose it upon other people. And and I always get people calling me up and asking me what should I do, what should I do, and and they are almost always frustrated because I won't tell them because I only speak in the most general of terms because. What I say is you need to find God to, and God will tell you what you need to do. But you can't hear God. His, you can't, that's what, that was the problem at Mount Sinai. They couldn't hear God. And they could, they, cause they had all this other noise in their head and in their heart, this emotion in their head and their heart. I mean, you go talk to a liberal leftist and they cannot, they cannot hear you. When you talk with words, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, I hear you saying words, but it just sounds Greek. And I wasn't even talking Greek <laughs> or Hebrew. They, 
they literally cannot put the words together in their head. And, and it's because they're not alone <laughs> in their head. They have other influences. Now, admittedly, some of the other personalities in their head is them. They're invented personalities. But we're often in, but when they call it, Jung and even Freud referred to it as the collective unconsciousness. And so if it's collective, then that means there's other influences influencing your unconscious mind. So if you think a particular way, you will actually be connected to other people who think that way. You know, and we've done shows about twins, how twins raised separately, you know, are picking the same names for their children and for their dog and everything. And they have this connection. They're raised apart. They never even knew the other twin existed. But there's all these parallels in their life because they are connected. Psychologically connected. Well, you connect yourself. If you're unforgiving, you connect yourself to the realm of unforgiveness. And by, and by that same token, you unconnect yourself from the realm of forgiveness. Because you are unforgiving. The reason you gather together is to learn to forgive and to give. To learn to walk in that forgiveness. And then that will begin. That process of learning to do that. Because you, you'll say, I forgive so and so. and But you haven't. You A little bit maybe. But not all the way. And so you have to rewire that. It's like an addiction. You have an addiction to unforgiveness. You have addiction wherever you go. You go to the Methodist church. You go to the Baptist church. Soon you see a commotion. You see uh, drama. Uh, you see conflict. And then you come to us and you see the same thing again. Why? Because you have an addiction to judgment. You have an addiction to unforgiveness. Judgment is unforgiveness. Because why are you judging? I thought God was judge. If you won't let God judge, if you have to judge other people, then you're not walking in forgiveness. You're usurping God with every step you take. Well, how in the heck are you going to hear God if you're always running out in front of Him and trying to do His job for Him? And this is deep. This goes deep into your psyche. Into your mind. And so, if we're going to take that trip, so let's use some psychological terms. I mentioned anima and animus. Animus being the male identity, according to Carl Jung. And uh, anima, the female identity, whatever the heck that is. Now with feminists, they're, they're blending all this. I don't know why so many feminists want to become like men. <laughs> because they're animus. They're actually, they have an animus possession of their mind. <laughs> And so they're becoming more and more like men. But this, uh, these are archetypes, anthropomorphic archetypes. What's the anthropomorphism? Is, uh, is the, an attribution of the human traits, uh, emotions, intentions, uh, uh, to non-human entities. And this, this is what they're talking about when they're talking about, uh, graven images. You're not supposed to make any graven images of animals, etc., etc., you know, or anything that walks and crawls and etc. But this is this is what you do. Now we we do this this personification uh, 
That's another thing is related to attributes of human form and characteristics uh, to abstract concepts such as nations, emotions. And we do, the Bible does this. It talks about bears and eagles and leopards and lions being representative in prophecy of nations. We do this every day. You know, he he's a pig. We call this person a pig. Why? Because he eats like a pig. Because he treats people like a pig. Uh, we, we say, you kids, stop monkeying around there. <laughs> what? What? What do you mean, monkey? Well, it's a personification of characteristics that we associate with animals. We do this in fables, which is, you know, Aesop was doing it all the time. You got talking foxes and, and rabbits and, and elephants and lions and mice and all these things. And they're, they're, they're bringing this personification of characteristics that we assign to animals. If you go back to the Arthavedas and which uh, some of which are supposedly written by Abraham, at least that's the claim uh by by many in that, you know, in the Hindu religion, they they talk about storks and monkeys and they're talking about characteristics. The, these are like fables, like and they're trying to give you an insight into your own mind. But the mind of God is not limited to, you know, falcons and and uh, lions and leopards and it's it's the Creator God. It's everything. And so when we start dividing these things up, there's a danger there, especially when we're dividing them up with our intellect, like Jung and Freud was was doing, and psychologists are trained to do. But even psychologists have personal identities and they look into their own hearts and they have to deal with relationships. So this is why you get into a congregation. And I was saying on the show the other day that every time you guys congregate together, you should take a look at the Bible, read some quotes in the Bible. They did this in the early church, 150 AD. They would read scriptures. Now the Bible hadn't been put together yet. I mean, the Torah was together, but the New Testament wasn't together. But they would read writings. There were lots of writings. There was over 145 different books wandering around out there in the New Testament before the New Testament was formulated by Eusebius, who was paid by Constantine to do it. But the reality is, is in these books uh, were the writings of the early church, and they would read them together. And ponder them together. Now you have to be careful of turning this into an interpretate, private interpretation fest. Where you're going to tell everybody what it means. Allow people to do some pondering on their own. You can bring in some other information. Well I heard that in those days this was this and all that. And that's what we do a lot of times. But uh, ponder together. Because... W- one of our big problems is the collective unconsciousness. And there's a lot in your unconscious mind, which is all those things you haven't forgiven, those traumas, all all those uh, things that you have become addicted to, emotions, uh, friendships, uh, uh, even, you know, sexual encounters, whatever. All these different things in your past that you, you know, food addictions, uh all these physical and emotional addictions that you have, they're all in there too, in that collective unconsciousness. And what you want to do is bring light 
into your relationships, light into your life. You want to shine light on one another. You're not trying to prove each other wrong or put each other down or criticize each other so that you will feel better. All these things are are dangerous. You will do that. There will be people in your congregations that do that. But you know what? That's an opportunity for forgiveness. But the reality is, is that you have to be very careful and, you know, and I give the example of Messianic Jews, but it doesn't have to just be them. You know, Baptists do as Methodists do this, where they have this doctrine that this is why it was, you know, I was just, I was just kept being astounded by people in the network who kept saying, you need to write a doctrine. You need to write a doctrine. Like I somehow, I'm so, I thought it was already written. The doctrine of the church. I mean, in the definition of what the church is. The doctrine of the church is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Why do I have to rewrite it? I think he's pretty clear in what he said. You know, when he told his disciples, make the people in a command. He commanded them to make the people sit down in the ten, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You know why congregations today and churches today don't want to do that? Because it makes each family and each small a company of family 10 families independent and you know that's what that's why so many people have moved to, moved to home churches is because they they like that independence well that's great but you can't forget the kingdom you have to love the next congregation as much as you love your own you can't just love your congregation and get into a group where everybody loves each other because there is no grace if you only love those who love you you have to love the next congregation. And you can't sit down with a hundred congregations and get to know everybody. But that's good because you're supposed to love those people you don't know <laughs> in order to get grace. What grace have you if you only love those who love you, the ones in your little congregation? You have to love the people in the next congregation. There wasn't going to be enough loaves and fishes until people started doing that. And because they started doing that, there were loaves and fishes. There wasn't going to be leeks and onions and melons and cucumbers and, and, uh, and, uh, what was the other thing? Garlic. If you didn't start doing this. So what they had to do, and I make reference to this on that page, is they needed these 70 guys to come out. I don't know. Are they going to raise garlic? What are they going to do? Well, these 70 guys are picked by Moses and he brings them to the tabernacle and God breathes in these 70 guys and then this solves the problem. How in the heck did that solve the problem? Maybe we misidentified the problem to begin with. Well, of course we did. And so did the translators of the Bible for centuries upon centuries. you got to remember that the Jews had to translate, after the captivity, they couldn't read Hebrew. They couldn't read the ancient text. So they had to translate them so they could understand them. There was a difference of opinion about what they said. And so they decided to build the tabernacle. And... Some want them to build the tabernacle according to the ways of the ancients. But they decided to actually build a physical tabernacle. And the old men wept 
heard heard preachers saying this because they wept with joy. No, they wept because they misidentified <laughs> what building the tabernacle is all about. And your modern Christians, they're all, oh, you know, the ones that are waiting for, you know, the sacrifice of the red heifer in Jerusalem and building the new temple and everything. And they think that's, you know, then this will usher in the second coming and all this stuff. Building the temple is a temple built without hands. It is, you know, you you need the circumcision of that is done without hands. <laughs> and if you're going into your congregations judging one another, creating drama and commotion, blaming other people, you need to be circumcised. <laughs> You need a circumcision of the heart. You need to repent. You need to have your brain rewired. So if you want your brain to be rewired, you have to start forgiving and giving. That's what you have to do. And you're going to find it hard. But as hard as any alcoholic to stay sober. (laughs) Because you're addicted to judgment. You're addicted to... You know, uh, your own ego. So anyway, we, we were talking about this, uh, anime and animus and personification and all these kinds of things, which are all psychological terms. Well, now bring those psychological terms into this spiritual understanding. You know, we have this tendency of viewing human behavior in terms of, uh, the behavior of animals. Like I said, you know, where you call somebody a pig or, uh, He's such a gorilla or, uh, you know, uh, he's such a frady cat. You know, we do this all the time. But that's that's this uh, aspect of dividing people up. And what we really want to do is bring people together in the light of Christ, which means you have to walk and come together. That's why I tell you, the congregation, if they're not coming to give... And to serve others. They're not coming in the name of Christ. The problem is that when you come. You also bring the shadow. (laughs) Your shadow. The id. They call it in psychological terms. You bring your drama. You bring your uh, anxiety. And your your traumas. and And that's okay. Bring it. But be ready to sacrifice it. Be ready to sacrifice your id, your ego, on the altars of truth. And and you aren't ready to do that if you're not walking in forgiveness. So you're, there are going to be times when you don't forgive and you get upset and work. Come back again. And do it again. Don't just change ministers. Don't just change congregations. Uh, don't say, well, I'm, I want to have a congregation a thousand miles away from me because I can get along with them better than I can with the people that are actually right in front of me. <laughs> well, uh, there's a reason for that. <laughs> you need to face your demons by sitting down in love and patience with other demons. How did, how did, uh, Jordan Peterson cast out, or he didn't actually cast out, but he bound a demon that was influencing this animus possession 
which I thought was interesting. He mentioned that that was taking place with Kathy Newman. And he didn't even seem to know how he did it, but he did it. And it was a little awkward in my book with it, but he did it. And completely, she just, she couldn't think. She she had no input because she he broke the connection with this collective unconsciousness that was driving and motivating her. You need to do that. And it needs to be done to you as well. That's what a congregation is for. But we'll be back. So welcome back. We only have uh, half an hour to finish the rest of this thought. Uh, so we're going to take a few jumps here. It's very interesting to take a look at how uh, people like Jung and Freud divide up this anima, anima and animus, these other identities that dwell in our subconscious. And of course, this is where the split personalities come from. And uh, uh, and, and uh, we have these... Uh, you know, schizophrenia. And we actually often, most schizophrenia, or at least most that I've encountered, is a division of the mind, which is what schizophrenia means. It's a division of the mind where part of your brain can't deal with the reality that you're dealing with. So it like breaks off and develops a separate identity, separate from your your conscious identity. And it it wants to communicate with you, but it doesn't want to bring that pain of that and that trauma. So you actually have, you know, you start hearing voices, but the voices may be just coming from your subconscious, where you have buried so much because of trauma, pain, anxiety. Um, you've buried it in, in your subconscious. It actually develops an identity of its own because so much of your identity is lost in there and uh, and it tries to communicate with your conscious mind and you hear that communication sometimes in voice now that's dramatic and uh, and uh, and it can bring some good things and it can bring some bad things and we can go into that at another time but really what you want to be is whole again and not to have that division and you want to have access to your subconscious, free access to your subconscious. What's in your subconscious, if you were conscious of everything, if you could see everything and notice everything all the time, you couldn't even function. So a great deal your subconscious notices is just stored away in your subconscious so that you can function in your conscious mind. And... Uh, and 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 use it, but occasionally you need to go back into your subconscious mind and find out where information is at, <laughs> you know. And you can actually take tests, and if you can access that subconscious mind, you can say, "Well, what is the answer to this problem?" And it will just come out. Your brain will do all the math and all the stuff in your subconscious, and the answer only will come out. You can actually do that. Uh, I mean, you should be able to do that, but you can't. 
And the other problem is, is that when you're traumatized by somebody, this is why a lot of people are homosexual today. And, and for a long time, this is, I mean, if you go back and many people who are homosexual or became homosexual, most, some of the most famous homosexuals, all can report back to a fact where they were molested when they were younger. Now, there are other kinds of trauma other than molestation. But that they go back to that trauma. Well, what's happened is a piece of the identity of the person who molested them has gotten into their subconscious. And now it feeds along these wired connections in your mind, the hardwired connections in your mind, the character of that person who molested them. And so they think they're homosexual. I, I, I could actually tell you an interesting story of encounter, but I, we'll, we'll get off the topic. But the reality is there's a lot going on there that people don't see, and it has to do with what's in your subconscious. So if Christ is the light, if God is manifested in the light, he's going to bring light into that subconscious. Well, what else is in that subconscious? According to Jung, there's something he calls the shadow that's in that subconscious. It's not, shadow is the result of light not shining in a particular area. <laughs> and so, and, and they refer to it, I mean, psych, psychology books talk about, in short, the shadow is the dark side. <laughs> it's, it is the darkness in our own heart. And, so this is this is why confession is talked about in the Bible. You know, you don't have to go to a priest and confess, although in some way there is a certain reality to that, but not in the the Catholic sense. But you have to confess, you have to see the darkness that's gotten into your own heart. And when you see it, you know, like if you were molested or abused or beat up or banked with a rod or whatever it is where you haven't forgiven your parents, you have to go and see that and now forgive. You know, I I just heard a story about a woman who was brutally, brutally raped by a total stranger. I mean, like broken bones and dragged and bleeding and and, uh, uh, just totally knocked unconscious and everything. And she ended up being pregnant. And her husband decided to keep the baby. There wasn't even any question about it. And they, they've they turned it into a blessing. And I thought, like, you know, she's gone public with this story now. The guy who did this, a uh, terrible thing to her, just picked her randomly. D- didn't know her or anything. Just stalked her and beat her up. Now he, that's his child. <laughs> Where's he going to come from? I mean, there's already been court cases where a rapist wants partial custody of the child that he forced some 12-year-old to uh, bear by raping her. And the judges are saying, yeah, he gets visitation rights. You know, like, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) But, see, they're devoid of common sense and understanding because they all live in the shadow world. They're, they're all subject to their subconscious. And, and this is growing more and more in America. I mean, it's always been around. But we're actually getting to a very unhealthy level. And this is what I was going to say. And I, I mentioned it on the, the page about leeks and onions. 
that they're experiments and it's the herd mentality. And if you're talking a collective unconsciousness, you're talking about a herd unconsciousness. Well, if there's a herd unconsciousness, there's also a herd consciousness. If there's a dark side, there's also a light side. So, and, and this came up in one of our calls too, but I didn't describe it. So I'm going to describe it in one of our study calls on Tuesday. But I'm going to, I'm going to make reference to it now because I understand the herd, the herd mindset. And Christ talks about us being a flock. He talks about his apostles being the little flock, a special flock. And then he also talks about others that of which we do not know. And that's another flock. But this herd flock, that's herd mentality, the the cattle, each cow has a life of its own. But it also has a herd life. And when they're attacked, they come together. When they have young calves in the field, certain cows will be babysitter cows. Everybody knows who they are. Certain cows will never be babysitter cows. Nobody will allow them to be. Nobody will depend upon them. None of the cows will depend upon them to be babysitter cows that will sit back while the others are eating and sit back with the calves when they're real young and fragile. They won't leave certain cows to do that because they're just irresponsible. But they they figure all this out. I mean, if you watch cows in a field and if you're very observant, you'll see that there's a whole dance out there. There's this whole social structure. And uh, Peterson talks about lobsters having the same kind of social hierarchical structure. This is in the herd. And uh, and the reality is is that this, this was a test that was done where they, they put in a bunch of people into a big giant room and they told them all just walk around. And they all just kind of walked around and it was random and everybody. And this is an experiment. And they knew it was a social experiment. So people just walked around the room. And then they took a small group out, like 5% out. And they instructed them privately to walk in certain patterns in the room. And then they put them back in. And now they, everybody, nobody knew that they took this small group out. They didn't know who that small group was. They just randomly took people aside, and 5% of them, and gave them this pattern, and they sent them back in with this pattern. And they were to walk around in that pattern. It was just random, but they walked around, and uh, they they were to walk around in a certain way. And everybody began to follow them and follow that pattern. You know, the vast majority of them all began to follow that pattern. And this is why I mentioned that only 5% of the Roman Empire was Christian. And then suddenly Constantine tried to conform to Christianity and said that Christianity was legal and everybody should become a Christian. And many people went and got baptized, but they never repented. But the truth is, many of those people began to walk in the ways of Christianity. Not all of them. Many of them were professing to be Christians, you know, like Ambrose and still going out there and and asking the Roman Senate to persecute people who weren't his brand of Christianity, which is totally unchristian. But still, amongst the population, more and more people began to walk in the ways of Christianity. If we could get 5% of the people claiming to be Christian to actually walk in the ways of Christ, which includes sitting down in the companies, symposia, the tens, in ranks of 50 and ranks of 100 and 1,000. If we could get people to do that, 
and then start actually loving one another, caring for one another, providing for one another. But people want to eat the loaves and fishes and they don't want to sit down. If you don't sit down together, you won't walk together. So, when you form your congregations, the key person there is not the minister. It's you. You have to let the light in. And you have to see yourself. You have, including your shadow self. The darkness that's in your own heart. That causes you to create commotion. And create conflict. And divide people. Because you're unforgiving. And ungiving. Uh, according to Jung, everyone carries a shadow. And the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. So the, the counter of that is true. The more you are willing to see that you are unforgiving, the more you are willing to see that you are selfish, the more you are willing to see that you are egotistical and will not take your medicine, <laughs> the 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 darker your heart will become. We need to be bringing the light to one another. Not lording it over one another. Not trying to control one another. We need to see, uh, you know, these, these uh, traumas in our own past. And that's another thing. And yet, we talk, I talk about a, a minister has to take people by the hand. In other words, build that trust. And that's why you give to him and he gives to others. Is because you're building trust. You're beginning to trust him. And then, now he's not going to rule over your actions. He's not going to control you. He He's not going to lead you around. And every other congregant in there, every other elder in there should be doing the same thing, developing trust amongst each other so that you can help. I mean, your problems may not be exactly the same as the other congregants' problems. You can see some things they do not see. We're back to the 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 uh, men from uh, Indistan who were all blind. You're all blind in some areas or another. And now you want to see the elephant in the room. You you want to see the truth. And so each of you has to see not only what you can see and touch and feel, but you have to hear the others, and what they touch and feel. And together you will see the whole elephant. But if you don't listen to the others, if you don't give ear to the others, if you don't care about the others, you only care about yourself. If you don't come to congregate with, to bring your candle, if you got ten people, each one bringing their candle, you got ten candle power. But you have to share your light with others in love, in patience, in forgiveness, and generously. You have to burn your oil for the benefit of others. You have to come together to serve one another. Forget about, oh, I'm going to get all the ideas. I'm going to figure this out. How do you do this? How do you explain this? How do... No. Just learn to love one another. Care about one another. Listen to one another. Peterson has 
a list. I, he actually wrote a book. Uh, I probably written a bunch of books, but in one book he talks about the twelve rules of whatever improving yourself, and he actually has a, a longer list that is like forty long. We probably won't get to that, but uh, if you look at his 12 rules, it's kind of interesting. And, he, and these are springboards like we use uh, to help you see things different. He says, first rule, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Now, this is the first of the 12 rules. So stand up straight. You know, sit up. I mean, I, mean, I don't know about your, your parents, but my parents said, sit up straight. Stand up straight. Walk straight. <laughs> Well, you know, that has, that has a psychological message to it too. I mean, the, the, the way is straight. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear, it's straight, it's not crooked, it's not bent, it's not zigzagging all over the place. Stand up straight. Stand up. You know, standupgirl.com. I mean, this idea of standing up when they, he got the people to sit down. In in companies of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, because there's five thousand people there, he was getting them to sit down, but eventually they're going to stand up. That's why I say that when you gather together, even if you gather on the phone, and that actually has its advantages, to gather on the phone and uh, talk about the scriptures, talk about the things that, and it would be good if. If you talk about what we're putting out there, you know, uh, we have a study on 12, uh, on uh, Tuesday. Well, if you have your meetings on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, talk about what was on the study. Usually I try to get it out by Wednesday. Uh, listen to it. Talk about it. Share. What did you think when you heard this? Uh, what did you think when you looked at the page? Because you can look at the page even before the study. What caught your mind? Share it with somebody else. And it's like sheep in the field grazing. Each one is eating their own food, grazing their own bushes, picking on this plant or that plant, and getting the nutrition for themselves. But they do it together. And you'll see in the field, the sheep will will gather. And with sheep, they don't count. They don't have toes. So they only usually, the groups are usually seven sheep in a group. That's common. That's the most common. And they will be shoulder to shoulder eating. And it depends on, on what's been happening in the field, why they're gathered together shoulder to shoulder. But seven sheep in, in, in a group. And they, they will be aware of the other groups around them. You know, five to seven in each group. And if a coyote comes into the field, they'll all come together. They'll just run at each other and they'll all come together. But when they're just grazing, that's often how they are. When I take them way up in the high deserts where they can smell bobcats and mountain lions and, and, and they're in a place that they're unfamiliar with, they will literally line out shoulder to shoulder. All 144 will line out together in a shoulder to shoulder way. You know, line. You can just see them. They're actually touching shoulders all the way across the desert. And uh, grazing at the same time. So, that the, the, this way where it says stand up straight with your shoulders back. Uh, this, is, this is part of this whole pattern of life. 
And when you gather in these congregations, you're, you're gathering together in these small groups, not forgetting the rest of the flock, but you gather in these small groups and create that trust in the small groups, which will telegraph uh, in the collective consciousness to the rest uh, and unconsciousness to the rest of the network. So anyway, a second rule is treat yourself like you would someone you are responsible for helping. Treat yourself like you care about yourself. You know, if you did that, your eating habits would probably change. You know, how many times have I seen parents forbid their kids to do certain things that they themselves do? (laughs) You know, and this is why I tell, you know, I've seen people who smoke or chew tobacco. And I've known guys who, who chewed tobacco for years and then they had their first child. And they said, I gotta st- I can't chew this tobacco in front of my child. So he had to quit because he didn't want his children to see him chewing tobacco. And I got some great stories about that process. <laughs> but anyway, and third rule, make friends with people who want the best for you. And that's what you're supposed to be doing in a congregation. Theoretically, everybody comes to the congregation. They come to the congregation to serve themselves. Do they come to the congregation because they like the music? They go to church because they like the music. They like the preacher. They like the building. They It's got good heating, whatever. No. They should come to church with the intention to serve. Christ came that you might be saved. You should all be gathering that other people might be saved. You're not gathering to save yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you're going to be a doer of the word, you're going to have to come together that others might be saved because that's why Christ came. So that's coming in the name of the Christ. If you're coming to fix yourself or to be better or to have somebody who will help you when you need help, no. You got to come to be of help to others. His number four. Compare yourself with who you were yesterday. Not with who someone else is today or who, or the way someone else thinks they are today. It's about you, your walk. Are you getting closer to the kingdom of God? Or are you getting farther away? If you're judging others, if you're condemning others, if you're, you know, people say, oh, well, I love him, but he's an idiot. <laughs> well, I don't know. I hear judgment in that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I tried to say it as if I uh, heard judgment in it. We're all idiots. We're all sinners. We're all fools. We all are have a shadow self. But, you know, you should be comparing your walk. How are you doing? Stop looking at what everybody else is doing wrong and start looking at what you're not yet doing right. Are you getting closer? Are you, are you, where are you headed? Are you making excuses? Are you, are you actually going to take a look at what has driven you from place to place to place to place to place to place, from friendship to friendship to friendship to friendship? What, what is actually driving you? What haven't you forgiven in the past that makes you so, you should be, if you are really getting closer to God, you should be getting closer to love and patience and, and content. Uh, in every day and so that people can't even begin to upset you. 
You, you don't even get close to storming out of the room. You let evil storm out of the room. You, your, the kingdom of heaven begins within you. So anyways, number five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And now he's talking children, small children here. You know, don't tolerate your children doing things. I'm not, I wouldn't do this. Why are you doing it? Why would I let you do it? I don't approve of it. And so that's that's a real complicated area because we do a lot of projecting with our children. And we have to, you know, we have to be like Christ to our children. And, and he suffered unto me the little children. So you have to have tremendous patience with children. You know, and, you know, this gets in the whole area of spanking and stuff like that. A parent has a right to spank his child, but every time you do, you've probably done something wrong. So we're not going to get through all 12 of these because we just don't have enough time. But it says, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world or your congregation. That's number six. Do that. See you again at Keys of the Kingdom. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.